When it comes to the treatment of type 1 diabetes, much has changed over the almost 100 years since the discovery of insulin. Insulin pumps, continuous glucose monitors, and other advances have helped improve management of the disease. But as anyone living with diabetes will tell you, there's still a long way to go. Dr. Bruce Perkins from the University of Toronto and Mount Sinai Hospital studies the complications of diabetes and ways to improve treatment for those living with type 1. At the 2019 Diabetes Canada Professional Conference, taking place this October in Winnipeg, he'll be delivering a plenary address on his work in adjunctive therapies for type 1 diabetes. I'm Krista Lamb, and today on the Diabetes Canada podcast, we've got a sneak peek at some of what Dr. Perkins will be discussing at the event, and why better treatment for type 1 diabetes just might involve a well-established treatment for type 2 diabetes. Welcome, Dr. Perkins. Thank you so much, Krista. So first things first, not everybody is going to understand what adjunctive therapies means. So tell us a little bit about what that means before we, uh, we go much further. Sure. So when we refer to adjunctive therapies, it's uh, specifically in type 1 diabetes. You might know that if uh, someone has type 1 diabetes, they need insulin to survive. Uh, full stop. One needs insulin. The question is, could we use something on top of insulin to help achieve uh, blood sugar uh, targets better. So that's the idea. It's an add-on therapy on top of insulin with the intention of improving blood sugar control. And specifically, we talk about a class of drugs called SGLT2, SGLT1. And so how would that factor into this? Because we talked a lot in the podcast about those over the years. Yeah. So. Um, I mean, the first thing to say is that type 1 diabetes, people may not realize this, although I'm sure you do, um, that there's sort of an epidemic in type 1 of people unable to achieve targets. We've set that A1C target at around 7% or below. It turns out it's like a very small proportion of people who actually need it. And in uh, teenage years and young adulthood, Average A1Cs are like disastrously high, like it breaks my heart to see it because we know that sets them up for complications in the next years. So there's been a whole bunch of drugs that have been transformative in type 2 diabetes care. They help improve blood sugar control for those people with type 2. And if there is some chance that adding those medications to pe- on top of insulin to people with type 1 diabetes could have some freaking effect on uh, controlling blood sugars, we should damn well test those out quickly and do it now um, because this epidemic of high A1Cs is too much of a problem. So there's been a bunch of drugs that have been tested, you know, even metformin and uh, glucagon-like peptide receptor agonists and um, a drug uh, called amylin, uh, and in fact, this uh, kind of class has been available as an adjunct drug in the United States for over a decade. Um, so there's been a bunch tested, but the SGLT inhibitors, so sodium glucose-linked transporter inhibitors, there are two subtypes, type 1 and 2, and there are drugs that kind of target one uh, more so than the other and some that target both of those subtypes. So we'll just call them sodium glucose-linked transporter inhibitors or SGLT inhibitors. They've had a huge amount of traction in the last few years. Like I'm so uh, proud of researchers and also like some of the uh, companies who've actually focused on answering this key question in people with type 1 diabetes because their real uh, market 
advantage, if you will, is in type 2 diabetes because of the numbers, and type 1 is often forgotten. And uh, so we've now seen in the last few years a huge amount of phase 3 clinical trials uh, with SGLT inhibitors. So I know I'm going on and on with your question, but you asked me what they are, SGLT yeah. inhibitors. So what they do, what's... Um, so someone with diabetes, and you don't even have to have diabetes for very long, like I could take your blood sugar right now and somehow raise it. I could put intravenous glucose uh, into your blood, and your kidneys will naturally try um, to keep any sugar in your system. So if you had a higher sugar and you filter some of that into your uh, your um, kidneys and into the urine, your kidneys are going to try and keep it because from an evolutionary standpoint, it would be terrible if we could lose calories in our kidneys. So what they do is they upregulate this SGLT, a transporter that takes glucose back. It just happens to take it back with uh, salt or sodium. Uh, and uh, people with diabetes, these uh, transporters are upregulated uh, so that they're always, even with higher sugars, they're still keeping more. So it's one of the things that drives high sugars. So if we could inhibit it, we could more naturally lose some of that glucose and normalize blood sugar, rather than always reducing blood sugar by stuffing the sugar into our fat and liver cells like we would do with insulin, part of the blood sugar control would come from just losing that uh, sugar in our urine. That's the concept of these medications. And we've seen a lot of testing over the last you know, 10, 15 years with SGLT2 and SGLT1 in people with type 2 diabetes. So it's been proven to be fairly safe and it's used fairly regularly, if I'm understanding correctly at this point, for the treatment of type 2. That's right. So actually, uh, SGLT inhibitors have been transformative in type 2 diabetes care. They have huge effects on improving blood sugars. But on top of that, because of the calorie loss, they help control weight, they help lower blood pressure a little bit. And then it's unbelievable, but the large-scale clinical trials that looked just to make sure that they're safe for the heart showed that they have this huge benefit on reducing um, cardiovascular events. Even uh, some of the trials showed uh, reducing death, even all-cause mortality, which is like unbelievable. How could this um, medication just by some chance that we didn't fully predict have such huge health benefits for people in type 2 diabetes. Um, so we now understand a little bit more of those mechanisms and a lot has to do with also normalizing uh, the loss of salt in the kidneys because people type, type, or with diabetes have a bit of excess salt retention and this sort of normalize that and that seems to protect heart through different mechanisms and protect from heart failure. So if these could be so beneficial in the life of someone with diabetes, I feel that people with type 1 diabetes should, uh, um, should also benefit from those benefits. And the thinking, though, is that there's risks. And so I know a lot of people have said the risks of SGLT inhibitors and people with type 1 diabetes are high. And so what do you say when someone brings up those risks? Yeah, so I mean, the key, there's a bunch of risks actually. The key ones in people with type 2 diabetes, just to start quickly, are uh, genital tract infections, yeast infections, more common in women, but uh, they can occur in men and women, and they're definitely more common with these drugs. But what we've learned is they're very common in diabetes to begin with, but they're even more common with these drugs because you're losing sort of glucose in the urine and it allows, more likely to allow yeast to grow, for example. 
Uh, and in type 2 diabetes, they also seem to be associated with ketoacidosis. And ketoacidosis is very rare in type 2, but it's less rare when they're on these medications. So now flip to type 1. They have the same kinds of side effects. They can have the general tract infections, which we don't see as a big scare. These are treatable and um, we adapt, uh, most people adapt uh, to managing this. But there's no question they ramp up the risk of diabetic ketoacidosis. And because the risk is much higher in type 1, um, it's much more of a problem than it is for patients with type 2 diabetes. Um, that is uh, an absolute truth about these drugs. They cause diabetic ketoacidosis, especially in people with type 1 diabetes. So we have to handle this. So if you want my opinion on this, uh, which uh, it seems like with your head nods you are asking for, um, you know, bottom line, if, you, if you're using these medications, it's kind of like you're not eating some glucose because you're losing it in the urine. And so your body shifts more towards fat metabolism and that produces more ketones. And that's fine, like, you know, you don't have diabetes. You know, now and then you make ketones, that's part of normal physiology. Uh, when you're fasted, you need to make ketones. Um, the problem is in type 1 diabetes, if you are deficient in insulin, you can make ketones abnormally. And if you make enough of them, they acidify your blood and they can kill you. That's called diabetic ketoacidosis. And so if someone's on a drug that increases a bit the levels of uh, ketones, as SGLT inhibitors do, that little small group of people who now and then have higher ketones uh, that might be a problem if they get sick with something, they've got a sick day and the ketones are a bit higher. Well, if they happen to be on an SGLT inhibitor, then they're a bit higher yet. So it does increase the risk of going into ketoacidosis. And uh, in my opinion, diabetic ketoacidosis is a problem to begin with. Like five people out of every hundred every year out here in the world without SGLT inhibitors go into DKA of those with type 1 diabetes. Uh, so it's already a problem that we have to handle better and we don't do a great job of it. So now if we have someone who's using this medication, we gotta make sure that they really understand how to identify ketoacidosis, how to test for it. For example, there's a blood or a urine strip that can check for ketones and they need to know how to manage it, what to do with their insulin. And I feel like we need to do a way better job of educating everyone with type 1 about this, uh, but for sure we'll need to if someone is going to go on an SGLT inhibitor. Right now in Canada, it's not approved for type 1. It's being considered by Health Canada. Um, they've been approved in Europe and also in Japan. So there, they're figuring out how do we really ramp up the good education to help support people prevent ketoacidosis. And we may need to do the same here. And one of the reasons that I'm kind of, you know, pushing more on this topic is because you were spoke at the ADA conference that happened a few months ago, and you had, um, you debated on this topic. And it was one of the most interesting things to watch from a distance through social media, because people were absolutely fascinated by this. And you don't usually see like an academic debate getting a huge amount of traction on social media, but people were really excited about it. And one of the comments that one of the women living with type 1 made um, after kind of hearing the arguments back and forth was like, I can live with a yeast infection, but I don't know if I can live with DKA as a potential side effect. And so it was really interesting to hear from so many people and so many perspectives because I mean, the FDA has not approved it at this point. Health Canada hasn't approved it. There's so much going on. There's so much testing that needs to be done. But it seems, on the one hand, so exciting, but on the other hand, so scary. 
Yeah, I agree with you. Uh, it is scary. So I, I, would, I feel nervous about the idea of uh, prescribing it. The thing is that we've introduced really effective things in type 1 diabetes care that have huge risk of ketoacidosis before we've done it. Uh, so that thing is pump therapy. When pumps were first evaluated in type 1, they were associated with a five to seven fold increased risk of ketoacidosis. So we could have said there, you know what, forget it. It's too risky. Keep on injections. And that probably would have been fine. Maybe the world would be a better place today for people with type 1. But in my heart of hearts, I know that that therapy's really transformed care for a lot of people, that that's the tool, an insulin pump that helps them get through their day and achieve their targets. So I'm glad that they have that available. And what we had to do was gradually adapt to it, get better catheters that were less likely to kink or people to react to, get better education on knowledge of the symptoms of ketoacidosis and how to track for it. And so we've incorporated that into the care, but still we have too much DKA. There's five events per hundred people every year, and that's too many. Um, and pumps are definitely one of the things that drive that uh, higher rate. So we just gotta work harder on managing type one diabetes safely. So one thing, if a new therapy comes along that reduces A1C and has great effects on blood pressure and weight and possibly uh, help prevent uh, cardiovascular events, we could say, well, forget about it because it's going to increase this already higher risk of ketoacidosis. And I think that's a perfectly good view. I think a lot of patients could just say, I'm glad you've offered this to me, but I'm not ready to take on that risk. But many patients will say, listen, I'm on top of this. I understand how to self-manage and monitor for ketoacidosis. I'm ready to take on these, uh, these benefits from this medication, and we just need to make sure that we uh, trust that they're confident in managing their diabetes safely, adding such a medication. And there continues to be really great studies happening, both in type 1 and type 2. For example, the Credence trial was also something that was talked about a lot at the ADA conference in regard to kidney health and SGLTs. And is that something that you thought of as a positive in terms of the future for type 1? Yeah, so earlier when I mentioned in type 2 that it's been transformative, uh, these drugs, SGLT inhibitors, um, because of their effects on metabolic parameters like blood sugar, but also this crazy unexpected protection from cardiovascular events. Well, it turns out they have this crazy, uh, unbelievable reduction in uh, progressive kidney disease in people who've already got some degree of kidney disease. And that's what the Credence uh, study showed. Like it's an unbelievable effect. These drugs protect kidneys, full stop. Um, and I feel that people with type 1 diabetes deserve to have their kidneys protected as well. Now, uh, but it won't be for everyone. Some people won't be able to negotiate that risk of ketoacidosis. If I see a patient in clinic and a month ago they had, let's say, gastroenteritis, had a gastro attack, and they got really sick, and they never thought to check a ketone, I feel too worried for them to be on some other therapy that could increase their risk of ketones because they didn't quite manage that a month ago. So what I would do is talk through this, like, hey, if we were to go back that day you were sick, what, what uh, could have you done? We make sure to educate around uh, management because it is manageable preventing ketoacidosis. Uh, and only if I feel confident they really understand that would I feel comfortable for them to be on a medication like an SGLT inhibitor. 
And I think that's a great place to ask the question as to if a healthcare professional is listening or a patient who is interested in talking to their healthcare professional about this sort of treatment once it is available, what would you sort of advise? Yeah, like sort of a clinical protocol. So first of all, I think whenever a new thing is added, you know, it adds some complexity, there should be a good reason for it. So, you know, people who are achieving their target A1C uh, already with insulin alone and have a good lifestyle, they have, they've developed good self-management skills and, and they've gotten the habits, they're, they're succeeding. They should just be damn proud of themselves. And we don't need to add any more complexity. Unfortunately, they are the minority. They make up a quarter or less of patients with type 1 diabetes. So I think, you know, these are, these are people I just want to reassure that they're like awesome and they should move on, continue with that therapy. But those who are struggling, you know, every time someone comes in and their A1C is above target, what we do is we tend to flog them with more information, more education. Oh, you're estimating your food bolus dose of insulin. Well, now you should carb count as though carb counting is easy. We're adding more work. And so to offer some other uh, solution that has an effect on lowering A1C, a nice effect, um, is something that I feel really good about. Um, so I guess I made that a long answer, but the first step is like choosing the patients who need it, not those who don't need it. That's step one. Step uh, two is making sure they do understand uh, the potential side effects of the medication and that they're able to describe what diabetic ketoacidosis is and they're able to uh, describe what the symptoms are. And so the symptoms, people can feel nauseous, vomiting, they can have abdominal pain and feel sort of fatigue and malaise. And these drugs, you can start developing ketones and the symptoms of ketones without necessarily having a high sugar. Without these drugs, usually people, if they're making ketones, will have a high sugar because it's the sign that they don't have enough insulin. But with this medication, because they're peeing out more sugar, they can have uh, more normal, not normal, but more normal looking uh, glucose levels and still be getting symptoms of ketones. So they just need to understand, they wake up one morning feeling nauseous, they gotta check a ketone regardless of what their blood sugar is. And if their uh, levels are higher, we follow a protocol, like right now, the one that's most common, is called the STITCH protocol. Stop your drug temporarily, uh, inject insulin, um, uh, at a higher dose than you would ordinarily take. So if you're taking a correction dose, amplify it, like multiply it by one and a half. Um, to um, uh, take uh, carbohydrates and to hydrate. Um, and then be ready, uh, if things worsen, to go to an emergency room. So I think these things are kind of manageable. Most patients kind of get this, or they already understood that they would need to to do these uh, if they were developing ketoacidosis. So we just want to make sure that if they're on a drug that increased that risk, they certainly know, uh, know that. So a lot of interesting information, and I think everybody that attends the conference in Winnipeg is going to enjoy that plenary talk. So thank you for joining me on the show today. Listen, Krista, thank you so much for all of your work. It's an absolute pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. And thank you to everyone for listening to the Diabetes Canada podcast. If you're a healthcare professional who's interested in attending the Diabetes Canada Professional Conference in Winnipeg, visit diabetes.ca backslash professional conference to learn more and to register. 
If you'd enjoyed, if you've enjoyed today's show, please be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or the podcast provider of your choice. While you're there, please take a moment to rate and review the show. It helps others to find us. If you have questions about this topic or others, you can reach Diabetes Canada at info at diabetes.ca or touch base with us on social media. We're on all the channels at Diabetes Canada. Thanks for listening.